0: So tonight is our first night back in our study of Ephesians after a couple of months. And as we re-enter this verse by verse study going through the book of Ephesians, we actually need to set up a much bigger scene. And the scene that needs to be set up is actually one that takes place in the gospel records just before Jesus's crucifixion. So I want us to go back in our memory to Jesus's journey just before the cross. And we need to set up some pieces because it's pertinent to what we are studying tonight. So Jesus was on the precipice of the darkest, most difficult, most demanding day of his life. In less than 24 hours, he would be betrayed by Judas. He would be denied by Peter and he would be tried as a criminal. In less than 24 hours, he will be stripped of his clothes. He will be mocked by many and he will be spit upon. The adoring crowds will give way to angry mobs. He will be beaten mercilessly. He will be nailed to a Roman cross and he will die an excruciating death in front of his mom. Jesus knew all of that was coming. And less than 24 hours prior to those events, he spent a significant amount of time in prayer with the Father with a very specific focus. And it's not unusual to find Jesus in prayer through the Gospels. He would often leave the crowds and go to a deserted place. He would go to the mountains. He would leave early in the morning. He would stay up late at night. He would get alone with the Father in prayer. The fact that he was praying is not the big piece that I want to bring out, but the fact that in John chapter 17, we get one of the clearest glimpses to the specifics of what he was praying. And that's different. It's different to find out what was he actually praying back to the Father. So in the text, in John chapter 17, it tells us that Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. He prays that his actions would glorify the Father. He recalls the way he manifested the name of the Father and how he shared the Father's words. He recounts the fact that he had been sent by the Father and he is about to return to the Father. And then he says this, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one. Hold on to that idea, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, they is referring to his disciples. As he continues in prayer, he prays that our joy may be full. He prays that the Father would keep us from the evil one. He prays that our lives would be sanctified with truth. And then he says it again, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. And then he reveals in that same prayer how unity within Trinity is a model for unity within the church. And then he says it again, the glory which you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. And then he reiterates it a fourth time by asking the Father to keep his disciples perfected in unity. Now remember, this is 24 hours away from his death on the cross. And 24 hours in advance of this, not only is he praying and interceding on behalf of the church, but he's very specific in his prayers. He prays four different times that we may be together as one, united as one, that we might come together as one. So the question is, why is that so important to Jesus? The next question is, what does that actually mean? If you're talking about unity, what does that look like? Does that mean that we just really get along with each other? Does that mean one in purpose, one in mind, one in mission? Like, what does that mean that we would be united as one? And why is it so important that Jesus would take that time just before his death on the cross to bring that up in prayer four times to the Father? Well, the answer to that question is the focus of our text for tonight. So I invite you at this time, go with me in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter number two. Ephesians chapter number two. We're gonna be in verses 14 through 18. And I want to address the topic of Jesus's prayer, this idea that we may be one, but I also want you to see that this is a centerpiece within the Apostle Paul's teachings. We're talking about unity and specifically, what did Jesus do that we may be one? This is what it says, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit guide us in truth tonight, that we would understand the significance, the importance, the beauty, the design, the need for unity within the body. God, thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Unity... Is more than mutual agreement it is more than the absence of major conflict it is a state of being joined as a whole or complete togetherness Uh, when unity is seen it is not only attractive it is rare it's one of those things that is extremely special Uh, Sometimes we get glimpses of this type of unity, maybe through books or maybe through movies. There's times that you will see unity at that level, maybe in a sports team, maybe in a strong marriage. Uh, Sometimes you've read about, or maybe even you've been a part of unity like that in some type of cutting edge company or praise the Lord. Sometimes you get a chance to be a part of that in a very kingdom minded church, but unity has an attractional quality. And when we see it, it's something that we want. We want to be a part of it. So when praying to the father in John 17, Jesus prayed that his disciples, listen to this, may be perfected in unity, but listen to why. So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them. That's huge part of god's plan for people believing in him is the world seeing something different in us did you get that he's saying when the world sees perfected unity the world is going to think two things the father sent jesus and the father loves them when was the last time you heard of unity in the body as a strategy for evangelism in the local church. And yet that's exactly what he's describing. He's saying when when the world sees this, it is attractive. It's going to bring a message. People are going to recognize that Jesus had been sent and the Father loves them. So I can remember the first time I really saw unity within a church It was during my junior year of college, I had been invited by some friends to go to a charismatic church on the outskirts of Athens, Georgia. And I accepted the invitation, but I was a little bit nervous about this invitation. I wasn't nervous about going to church. I was nervous about going to that kind of church. Now, some of you know, I've shared with you, I grew up independent fundamental Baptist, and we were warned about what happened in some of those charismatic churches. I I was thinking at any moment the snake handling was going to come out, and uh, we were all going to be asked to, you know, speak in tongues. I I just didn't know. And and for those of you who might not be familiar with independent fundamental Baptists, let's just say some have been known to take the fun right out of fundamental <laughs> it's uh, it's not exactly the the most lively group and, and to give you an idea of this in my church growing up there were men standing on the back wall of the church there was no raising your hands in church there was no clapping in church there was no amening in church And if somebody did one of those things or if a child was acting up or somebody wasn't paying attention, one of those men would step over, tap them on the shoulder, address it. And if it didn't change, they were escorted out the next time. That's how it was. So think about this guy, 20 years of rigidity set up in my bones and I go sit down for a worship service in a charismatic church. Let's just say when that service started, my jaw dropped on the ground. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. Get this. They had drums on the stage. (laughs) That was scandalous where I came from. People had their hands raised in worship. There were multiple people. I looked around, multiple people smiling at each other all through the service. I had no idea why. (laughs) Uh, The guy running the sound, I guarantee you, he was stone deaf because the sound never dropped below 100 decibels the entire time. So that service started and there were things happening all around me. Like, I mean, music start moving people. All of a sudden, they'd slide on out into the aisle. They'd break it down a little bit for you right there. They'd cut a rug. That service would end. They'd slide right back in. There was a part of me, I didn't know if I wanted to run. I didn't know if I wanted to stay. I didn't know what I wanted. All I knew is I was watching something that was incredible. More than a different style of worship. Listen, I saw something beautiful that was happening. I saw unity for one of the first times in my life. I'd looked out around this congregation, and it was different generations, young, old, middle-aged, all together. It was different ethnicities. It was different socioeconomic backgrounds but they moved like a unit. When the worship was on praise, they praised together. When the songs were reflective, they they cried together, they worshiped together. When the, the sermon was being preached, all I can say is they went on a journey of vocal affirmation together. I mean they're talking. Did you hear that? I, I told you about that last week. I mean they're writing, they're talking, but it it flowed, it was together, it was a unit. When they greeted each other at the beginning of the service, get this. They stepped out of their seat. I knew there was something against that in the Bible. Like once you get to your seat, like the original disciples, you're supposed to stay seated. And they walked around, and they shook hands, and they loved each other, and they greeted each other. And it was like five minutes, and I'm just looking at this like, oh, my goodness. But it was beautiful. It was the time in my life, and to show you how much of an impact that made, I can remember sitting in that church, and this thought came to mind, God, if you ever give me an opportunity, I would be grateful to pastor a multicultural, multi-generational church that looks on this side of eternity what it's going to look like on that side of eternity. Amen. That happened on that day, but it was the unity that I saw in that moment that was beautiful. So here's the point. Real unity is attractional. To be united doesn't mean that you all look the same and act the same and talk the same. In fact, real unity comes back to the source of your unity. What is it that is holding you together? And that is our key truth for this evening. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. Let me say that again. Jesus removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. Now, I want you to see that within the text. In verse 14, it starts with, "'For he himself is our peace.'" In most English translations, you will find both of those pronouns, he and himself, but the Greek text, it only has one. It's altos or he, but that he is actually a pronoun that's in an emphatic position, which means the writer is emphasizing it is Jesus alone. It is Jesus solely. It is Jesus by himself that is our peace. It is Jesus alone that is in fact one of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation it was scripture alone christ alone faith alone grace alone and for the glory of god alone those were defining pieces that branched off protestants out of the catholic church this idea of christ alone now don't miss the simplicity but the importance of that jesus alone is our peace Not Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus alone. When you're searching for peace, when you're searching for that that unity to bring together, it's Jesus alone. We understand that it's Jesus who brought peace between humanity and God. It's Jesus who brought peace between Jews and Gentiles. In the text itself, you can see in verses 15 and following, that. What the laws and the ordinances and the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the good deeds could not do, Jesus did. Jesus alone is our peace. He was able to remove what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. So what kept us divided? Well, he removed the dividing barrier. This was a specific division between Jews and Gentiles, but the implications go far beyond that. Verse 14, it says it like this, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now the barrier dividing wall was a physical barrier that existed within the temple. It symbolized that deep division that had taken place between Jews and Gentiles. Now, the Jews and Gentiles had a deep, enduring, lasting division between them. The Jews regarded Gentiles or non Jewish people as being unclean. The Gentiles thought that the Jews were prideful and religious hypocrites. Uh, Jewish Ritual laws, especially those concerning food and unclean foods, were those that made it virtually impossible for a conscientious Jew to ever have a meal with a Gentile. This division was specifically seen in what's mentioned there in verse 14, speaking of the barrier of the dividing wall. Now, here's what that means. The temple was surrounded by a number of different courts, and each court had a purpose, and each court had an intended crowd. So the innermost court was the court of priests. Only male members of the priestly tribe of Levi were allowed to enter into this court. The next court was the court of Israel. It could be entered by any Jewish male. The next was the court of women. The Jewish women would congregate in this area and they would only go beyond that if they had a sacrifice to give. Those are three different courts for three different segments of Jewish life, but listen to this. All three courts were on the same level. But from the court of women, there was one other court. To get there, you would have to go out a gate. You would descend five steps. You would go past a stone barricade. You would descend 14 more steps. It was the court of Gentiles. Anyone was allowed into this area. It was a place for prayer as well as preparation. For someone who was interested in the God of Israel, they had maybe heard about this God of the Israelites and they just wanted to see what is he like What are his people like? For somebody who needed hope, somebody who needed encouragement, they could come to this place, this court of Gentiles, and they could pray from there. They could observe from there. They could watch from this particular area. But let's say that person was thinking, I need to see more. I can't see what I need to see here. And if they move beyond that place, what they would do is they would walk up those 14 steps, but then there would be this stone barricade. And according to a Jewish historian of that time, there was an inscription that was on this side, the Gentile side of the stone barricade that said this, no Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was in both Greek as well as in Latin. Now in our society, it's not uncommon for us to see maybe a sign that's posted on On the perimeter of a property that says something like, trespassers will be prosecuted. But could you imagine going to a city looking for hope? You go to a church on a Sunday morning. You get to the edge of the property, and there's a fence going all the way around it. And on the side of the fence, right where people would come in, there's a sign that says, trespassers will be killed. Could you imagine that? The Jews... Fiercely defended these three courts and the temple itself from any type of Gentile intrusion. So much so that the Apostle Paul almost died at the hands of a mob in Jerusalem when a rumor circulated that he had taken some Gentiles beyond that particular wall. You can look at that, Acts chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. Had it not been for the fact that some Roman soldiers came and rescued him, they'd have stoned him. Paul is pointing back to this particular barrier, and he is reminding them of this deep division that had existed between Jews and Gentiles. And then he says in verse 14, for he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. The physical barrier itself was not destroyed until the destruction of the temple in AD 70, but the spiritual barrier was destroyed on Calvary. Jesus alone is our peace. He also removed the sin barrier. Look at what it says in verse 15. So that In himself he might make the two into one new man thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross Jesus reconciled them to God through the cross how did it happen it's through the cross This last fall, I went through six messages in the preceding verses, and we talked about the story of redemption, the story of the gospel. We we focused on the cross. We focused on what Jesus has done. All of that is absolutely pertinent because it is because of his work on the cross that this barrier went down. We have reconciliation with God the Father. The only way anyone is reconciled to God is through the cross. It's through the cross. Through the cross, he brought both Jews and Gentiles to God. Jesus' work on the cross is what made peace possible between humanity and God. Verse 17 tells us that. It says, he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. In other words, it didn't matter who the person was. It didn't matter their proximity. It didn't matter their position. He had the same message. Peace with God is made possible through the cross. Now, Paul highlights this message by using the temple courts. It was a way for believers to see this division between Jews and Gentiles. But listen, it was also a way for them to see a division between Jews and other Jews. So within the temple, there were two primary chambers. There was the holy place, and there was the holy of holies. The the holy of holies was the innermost chamber of the temple. Access was permitted one time a year on the day of atonement, and it was restricted to one person, the high priest, and they were to come in, and they were to place the blood of a goat on this, this altar in order to to pay for the sins of the people for that year. In the Holy of Holies, there was one major item. It was the Ark of the Covenant. On the lid of the Ark was a place called the Mercy Seat. And around the Mercy Seat, there were two cherubim, two angels It said they were facing inward and they were facing downward. And it was said the presence of God resided above the Mercy Seat. It was here that the blood of a goat was sprinkled by the high priest on the day of atonement to appease God's righteous anger for the sins of the people of Israel. Separating these two chambers, the holy of holies and the most holy place was the temple veil. Uh, many of us have heard and, and remember the passage of the veil being torn in two. And sometimes we get this image of maybe this thin cloth or this thin curtain. That was not the case. This particular veil was said to be between six inches to a foot thick. It was made of material and animal skin. And according to what we find in scripture, this veil symbolized the barrier between God's presence and God's people. It's the barrier that had happened because of sin, just as there was a barrier between Jews and Gentiles and warnings of death for anybody who crossed it. There was a barrier between God and people, and it also carried a warning of death to anybody who crossed it. Leviticus chapter 16, verse 2, it says, tell your brother Aaron that he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark or he will die for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. As I said before, the high priest could only go in one time a year under very strict requirements and for a very short period of time. According to Exodus chapter 28, verse 33, the high priest had gold bells tied around the hem of his robe, and as long as the people could hear the bells ringing, they knew he was still alive on the inside. When the bells stopped, It was believed that he did something wrong and God killed him. Talk about a high pressure job situation. (laughs) Now let's connect this back to you and I. When Jesus died on the cross, he paid our sin debt. The very debt that kept the barrier between us and God. When that happened, God himself tore the veil from top to bottom, reminding us again, it's not you and I working our way up to God. It is God who has worked his way down to us. At that moment, what had only been seen by a few eyes for the briefest period of time under the most stringent of requirements was now open for all to see. The mercy seat was open. You and I no longer have to go through someone to have access to God the Father. According to verse 18, it says, for through him, Jesus, we have our access in one spirit to the Father. To this day, get this, the mercy seat's still open. To this day, it's open. Because of his work on the cross, you and I have the unbelievable access to enter into the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Could you imagine, could you imagine what it would have been like for somebody who was there that day who had always wondered what was behind that veil? to be able to see it for the first time with their own eyes. But let me also go over here and say, could you imagine what that person would think of us, who every day, at any moment, we get a chance to slip behind that same veil and sit in the presence of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Could you imagine what they would say like, Are you kidding? You all get to do that at any time? The the sin debt has been paid. Could you imagine how others would be looking at us? Don't take for granted what Jesus has done. Don't take it for granted. So God takes unity seriously. He removed the dividing barrier between Jews and Gentiles. He removed the sin barrier between God and humanity. He removed what kept us divided so that we could be united in what keeps us together. Now, we're gonna continue in this same theme this next week, but what I wanna remind you of is God takes unity seriously. When Jesus' disciples are living in unity, it gives credence to the gospel message. Jesus said in John 17, when the world sees his disciples perfected in unity, there's gonna be two messages that come into their mind. The Father sent Jesus and the Father loves them. What a beautiful picture. So today we've only addressed the things that kept us divided. But let me ask you, Are there areas in your life right now where unity has been lost? Are there things that have worked into your marriage, things that have worked into your family, things that have worked into friendships? I I wanna encourage you, when God has done this much to bless us with unity, I wanna encourage you, if God brings any area to mind, that you ask God for wisdom and grace to go and to see if you can make things right. Go in a spirit of humility. Go with the understanding that you may have some wrong assumptions about what the other person might be thinking. Go with the idea of I'm not trying to prove I'm right. I'm more concerned that we're united. They might not listen to you. They might not want to reconcile with you. But the Bible says, as much as within you, be at peace with all people. The issue is, what is God prompting you to do? And listen, today. I think today is going to be my word for this year. It just keeps popping up. It seems like every single message, there's something to happen today. So what is God prompting in your heart in the area of unity today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for unity. Thank you for the blessing of the dividing wall coming down and the blessing of the sin barrier also coming down. We believe, we know, we understand. It's only possible because of Jesus. We thank you for what you've done. In Jesus' name. Amen.